0: Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. In the 1982 movie Tron, maybe one of the best things that Disney has ever made, the antagonist who runs a computer system with an iron fist is an evil AI known as the Master Control Program. The MCP, it is later revealed, was not always an all-powerful, super-villainy bit of malevolent software, No, Tron's principal bad guy started his life as a humble chess-playing program and worked his way up. And that makes sense thematically. Uh, The MCP, he's a dastardly scheming supervillain, and chess is a thing that we think of as a smart people activity. It is a signifier and byword for intelligence and calculation. When we think of a machine achieving some kind of intelligence, we oftentimes think of it as playing chess, like Data in Star Trek, for example. And in 1770, an inventor named Wolfgang von Kempelen revealed an 18th century version of the Master Control Program, or Data from Star Trek playing chess, to the court of marie Theresa of Austria. Von Kempelen brought out a machine that he said was capable of thought, strategy, and chess playing. And spoiler, it's a hoax. Don't get your hopes up. Just putting that out there. Von Kempelen started his show in a manner familiar to lots of stage magicians. He brought out a machine, a table, with a mannequin attached to it. A mannequin dressed in Turkish robes with a turban, holding a large pipe. He had a mustache and a goatee. And Von Kempelen said that he was attired in the manner of an oriental sorcerer. He opened up the cabinet in the machine, showed off the gears and the various mechanisms inside, assuring the crowd that there was not, in fact, a person hiding within the Turk. Then he'd turn it around, it was on casters, open up more doors, just like a magician saying, look, there is nothing up my sleeves. Also, there's probably a master's thesis or two, digging into the complex and maybe sort of weird racial, ethnic, and religious politics, of why Van Kempelen chose to dress his contraption in the matter of a, quote, Oriental sorcerer, which when you think about it is sort of weird and off-putting, but that is beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh, The machine, it appeared to play chess very well. At Marie-Therese's court, it did not seem to have a problem defeating its various challengers. And it could also do this neat chess trick known as the knight's tour, where you take a knight on the board, and have it move to each square once and only once, covering the entire board. Uh, Try it. It's really difficult. I tried to figure out how to do it for this episode, and I couldn't. And in addition to beating people at chess, the Turk had all kinds of creepy robot mannerisms to it. It would tap its fingers if you took too long to make a move, It would sweep the pieces off the board if you made an illegal move. And it had a voice box type thing installed in it so it could say a check, which is French for check if it, you know, had you in check. And the face and the head, they moved the expressions around in kind of a weird sort of uncanny valley kind of way. So the Turk wowed people at Marie-Therese's court. And then when word got around, other various European fancy people wanted to see this amazing chess-playing automaton. Now, this initial surge of interest, it seems like it was something of a problem for von Kempelen. Uh, the Turk, as you can imagine, it was a hoax. There was a human being inside of it. More on that later. I couldn't find any actual documentation on this, so this is speculation on my part, but I imagine that von Kempelen thought that he'd maybe wow the empress in her court once, impress everybody, give them something to talk about, and then after that just bask in the glow of having a nifty reputation because of this great con he pulled off this one time. But no, suddenly there's demand and people want him to take out the tour and people want him to take the Turk on tour. He doesn't want to. He says, nah, nah, it's nothing. He called it a quote, mere bagatelle. And again, speculation on my part, but I wonder if behind the scenes von Kempelen was wondering how on earth he'd rig it so that he and the Turk's operator could travel about and no one would be the wiser. Uh, Von Kempelen, though, must have worked out all of the logistics because he did indeed take the Turk on tour throughout Europe, uh, including to France where it played Benjamin Franklin, who was an ambassador in France at the time. Most of it was around to various courts and the like, but during the tour, the Turk did spend a year in London where Von Kempelen exhibited for five shillings a gander in sort of a Side-showy sort of fashion, and then the Turk it ended up in Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna for a number of years in storage. Von Kempelen died in 1804; he was 70 years old. And when he died, it appears that no one had really discovered the Turk's secrets. But the Mechanical Turk story is not over yet. Von Kempelen's son eventually sold the Turk. Gathering dust in a Viennese palace, to Johann Nepomuk Malzell, a musician and an engineer who had invented, among other things, a new kind of metronome. And Malzell, interested in mechanical objects and such, was only too happy to take the Turk on tour throughout Europe and the US, where the Turk would fascinate luminaries such as Napoleon Bonaparte and Edgar Allan Poe. There is a famous anecdote about the Turk. Which may or may not be true. I personally do not think this ever happened. It seems too neat and tidy to actually have ever been a real thing, but the story is that Napoleon Bonaparte, he was playing the Turk, and he attempted to make an illegal move in a game just to test a machine. The Turk moved Napoleon's piece back to where it had been. Napoleon tried the same illegal move again, and then the Turk just picked up Napoleon's piece and removed it from the board. The emperor then played the Turk for real, and was amused when the machine beat him. I like that story, and I want it to be true, but I think it has the whiff of a tall tale about it. It was during the Turk's travels with Malzell that the secret of the mechanical chess player was finally revealed. Um, I personally first learned about the Turk from a book by an author named Tom Standage, called, appropriately, The Turk. Uh, in that book, Standage didn't reveal from the outset that the Turk was a hoax, and I, being a naive youth at the time, thought that I was reading a book about a real-life awesome clockwork 18th century robot. When I finally got to the part about how the Turk actually worked, it had a person inside, again, I felt ripped off and kind of wanted to throw Standage's book across the room, kind of like how you felt when you first probably read about The Red Wedding. So I hope that I'm not going to crush any dreams here, dear listener, because we're getting to the part of the podcast where I have to tell you that the Turk was in fact all an elaborate illusion. Lots of people wondered about how this thing worked, and plenty of folks, like Benjamin Franklin, were skeptical that the thing actually was a clockwork robotic chess-playing machine. Uh, They thought that it was being controlled in some form or fashion with magnets. That was a popular theory. Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, uh, considered by lots of folks to be the first modern stage magician, and a guy whom Houdini later named himself after, uh, he speculated that the Turk was operated by a legless Polish war veteran who, because he didn't have any legs, could be nicely wedged into the box near all the machinery. Other people thought that it had a child inside, or a dwarf, or just a very small person. Uh, The Turk did, in fact, have several different operators. Uh, None of them, as far as I know, were legless. How it worked was the chess pieces that the Turk used had magnets on the bottom, which allowed the operator inside of the machine to look up to the underside of the board and see what pieces were where on the board. Also, all the finger tapping, the expression making, and the board sweeping were controlled by the operator. The Turk... Was not a machine reacting to a human, it was a human reacting to a human via a machine. Also, whoever was inside the Turk could communicate with whoever was outside. On either side of the wooden cabinet, there were a pair of large brass wheels which displayed numbers, meaningless to outside observers, but a code between the operator and a showman. Von Kempelen never got caught, but a few folks did, in fact gleaned the secrets of the machine when Malzell was operating it, and Edgar Allan Poe hit the nail on the head in an essay called Malzell's Chess Player, where he speculated that a man called William Schlumberger was operating the Turk. Poe wrote, quote, There is a man, Schlumberger, who attends him wherever he goes, but who has no ostensible occupation other than that of assisting in the packing and unpacking of the automaton. The man is about the medium size and has a remarkable stoop in his shoulders. Whether he professes to play chess or not, we are not informed. It is quite certain, however, that he is never to be seen during the exhibition of the chess player, although frequently visible just before and just after the exhibition. Moreover, some years ago, Malzell visited Richmond with his automata and exhibited them, we believe, in the house now occupied by Monsieur Bousseau as a dancing academy. Schlumberger was suddenly taken ill, and during his illness, there was no exhibition of the chess player. These facts are well known to many of our citizens. The reason assigned for the suspicion of the chess player's performances was not the illness of Schlumberger. Inferences from all of this we leave without further comment to the reader. So congratulations, Edgar Allan Poe. You have done admirable detective work in figuring out how the Turk works and who works it. Also, in Baltimore, a pair of kids saw Schlumberger coming out of the machine, so there's that. There you go. The Turk worked because it had a guy inside of it. I was disappointed when I learned that, but it's still a marvelous feat of engineering, performance, and misdirection. Nowadays, I admire the tricks that von Kempelen performed to mislead his audience. For instance, there was a small box on top of the Turk's cabinet that he'd sometimes fiddle with during performances to make it look like he was doing mechanical upkeep-type stuff. He wasn't. It was purely there to just fake out the audience. And most of the fancy-looking gears inside the cabinet that he showed off at the start of performance? The cabinet was designed with a sliding seat so that when the doors were open, Schlumberger, or whoever else was operating the Turk, could slide down out of the way below the doors, and then when the doors were closed, the dummy gears would all just fold up onto themselves, and the operator could hang out in the box and play chess. In 1838, Schlumberger died of yellow fever during a trip to Cuba. This was problematic for Malzell, who suddenly didn't have anyone to operate the Turk. Molzell himself died at sea that same year, which left a ship's captain in possession of one of the most famous illusions of all time. Eventually, the Turk wound up in a Baltimore museum, but it was destroyed in a fire in 1854. One witness to the fire is said to have remarked, Through the struggling flames, the last words of our departed friend, the sternly whispered, oft-repeated syllables, a check.' I love that image of a robot being consumed by flame and saying check again and again as it dies. The Turk just wouldn't have been practical from a mechanical or computing standpoint. The real, actual computers of the early days such as Babbage's Difference Engine, which was proposed but never built, but hey, it's realer than Turk, or ENIAC, the first real electronic computer, they would not have been capable of doing the amount of math necessary to actually do all the fancy chess stuff that Turk was allegedly capable of. I totally get why Turk was popular. I understand its allure completely. The idea of an old-timey robot who can outsmart humans is pretty cool, and we'd get there. The first AI to beat a human at chess was a computer named Maniac in 1956, back in the era where vacuum tubes were still inside of computers. uh, It defeated a novice player in 32 moves. Commercial chess playing software became available in the 70s, and from there it was just one big slide into smart machines beating dumb humans at chess, most famously Deep Blue, the computer who beat Garry Kasparov in 1997. If you really wanted to, you could probably rig up a chess-playing computer like Deep Blue, or one of its even more powerful successors, with robot chassis and fancy clothes to approximate the experience of getting beaten by the Turk. Someone should do that, by the way, if you haven't already. And the Turk is still known as one of the most famous automata of all time. It was the inspiration for a 1927 film, The Chess Player. It's shown up in all manner of fiction and it lends its name to Amazon.com's Mechanical Turk service. But one thing that I got really curious about when researching this episode was whether or not a computer could actually hold all of the chess games capable of being played in its computer brains. And to that end, I decided to ask an expert about this sort of thing. Uh, A very good friend of mine, Joseph Barker, has a PhD in artificial intelligence, And he actually has spent a lot of time on games, whether they are solved or unsolved, and how strongly or weakly they are solved. And this is what he told me about whether or not it is possible to know of all conceivable chess games possible in the world. He said, quote, The problem space for chess is quite large. A famous estimate by Claude Shannon puts an upper bound of 10 to the 43rd power of unique legal states in chess, although I don't think there's a way to know the actual number without doing an exhaustive search, which is practically impossible. If a computer could generate 10 million states per second, it would compute 31.7 times 10 to 28 years to generate every legal configuration of a chess board, which is significantly longer than the lifetime of our sun. Checkers, which I, again, this is Dr. Barker talking, which I believe is the largest game solved so far, has around 5 times 10 to the 20th legal states. Chess is huge compared to Checkers. A technical point, Checkers, as with most solved games, is only weakly solved. That means that the optimal strategy is known if play starts at an initial configuration, the standard starting board. If you throw a random board at a computer, say, you play part of the game manually, and then you hand it over to the computer, the optimal strategy isn't known. If you know the optimal strategy for every legal board state of a game, then the game is strongly solved. I'm not sure what the largest strongly solved game is. Connect 4 is, for fun, strongly solved. Unquote. What I find so fascinating, though, is that modern technology, the real things that we have now, have far surpassed the Turk, which was a fraudulent wonder of the world during its time. There is, now, enough computing power in your smartphone for that machine to beat you at chess. That signifier of intelligence has become something that computers are now quite good at, and thankfully none of them have become the master control program. What was once something that was only the domain of illusion and mystery has become, thanks to modern science and technology, A reality. No Mechanical Turk operator necessary. For related links of all shows, please go to interestingtimespodcast.com. We are entirely supported by our Patreon supporters, uh, so please do go to interestingtimespodcast.com and click on Support IT on Patreon to become a supporter. Uh, We're on iTunes. Please do give us a rating and give us a review. Like us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all of it. Also on X-Ray FM, 97.1 and 107.1 FM on Thursdays. Check us out. Thank you, guys. I'll see you all next week. Bye.